Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu. I'm coming to you from Accra. Hooray, the sun is shining. It's the Hamilton still, so it's a little bit dusty, but it's okay because the sun is shining and it's warm. And my guest knows Accra very well, but she is in another part of the world. She is a polyglot and thought leader in international development with a passion for young people, health, and innovation in Sub-Saharan Africa. She has 20 plus years of international experience working for UN agencies such as UNESCO, UNFPA, UNICEF, WHO, in Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast and Central Asia, and the German Federal Center for Health Education as a part of the European Expert Group on Sexuality Education in Europe. She is currently an assistant professor at the Center for Social Research and Health at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, where she's authored and co-authored five book chapters, numerous peer-reviewed journal articles, research reports, training manuals, and curricula on education, sexual and reproductive health, and health innovation. But that's not all, folks, and you're going to learn a lot more about this wonderful, dynamic woman. Ekua Yenka, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank Wonderful. So let's get right started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Okay, so my name is Ikua Yanka, as you had mentioned. I was born and raised in Germany, so I call myself a Ghanaian export. Both of my parents are Ghanaian, um, but I do consider myself to be Afro-German. So I lived in Germany until I was 15 years old. And then we moved to the U.S. and then I really started an international career. So I haven't lived in Germany exclusively. I've actually spent most of my life outside of Germany, including the U.S., France, the U.K., Brazil. And currently I'm living in Portugal. So I'm local in Berlin. I'm local in Portugal, I would say. Okay. And I'm also local in perhaps London. I mean, I considered London home for a really long time and it was yeah. an important part of my kind of growing up. So yeah, I would say those three places perhaps. Okay. And where in Portugal are you? I'm in Lisbon. Okay. Lisbon. Okay. And what is your craft? Oh, I have many crafts. So I consider myself to be a social entrepreneur, kind mm -hmm. of similar to you actually. Mm -hmm. So even though I have a kind of a set training as, an, as a social epidemiologist, a social scientist, I've really used my scientific training to expand into areas of, you know, social impact. So whether that be, you know, social impact related to health and well-being or also social impact, uh, a lot of work I'm doing now is in the visual arts and really trying to, you know, strengthen the art sector and making sure more people of color, especially and people of African descent are recognized in the art world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to go take a step back because in your bio, I read that you're a polyglot. And so you've mentioned many places that you've lived. So tell us some of the languages that you speak. So, yeah, I speak German and English, mother tongue, obviously. So my parents were interesting. They're quite forward thinking, I believe. So I was born in 1975. And Germany was a different place at the time. It was very monocultural. And although there were immigrants, many of them were not really integrated into German society. 
Mm-hmm. And so my parents believed that it was absolutely essential that we spoke flawless German in school. So my father took on the role of speaking German to us. And then my mother took the role of speaking English to us. And they sacrificed, unfortunately, um, us learning a dialect. So they're from the Fanti region. So I did not grow up speaking Fanti, mm-hmm. but I heard Fanti. So it was always really three languages in the household. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, learning languages at in school and university. So I started out with Latin. So we went to this very traditional kind of upper crusty old school gymnasium in Germany. So I learned Latin. And then through Latin, I was really able to pick up the other Latin languages quite quickly. So I got French, um, I learned Portuguese, I learned Spanish. And then I spent six years in Thailand and I have a basic understanding of Thai, but I really went through a six month intensive language program to learn Thai. So those are, yeah, those are my languages. Okay. Well, so you can get along pretty far. (laughs) I try. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So I think this is a, an interesting time to go into my glocal speak question. And so we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as glocal speak. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, I think considering that I'm in Portugal, I will use the phrase um, which means did everything go okay? So the Brazilians would say tudo bem, they're tudo uh-huh. certo, uh-huh. but in Portugal, they it's kind of like the British English and the American Got English. It. Got so it. they will say and so that's something that's really important. So people will ask, did everything go okay? So that's that's an important phrase for me right now. Okay, that's nice. It shows like a caring. Right. So it's someone who's taken an interest or people kind of generally care about what's going on. Yes. I mean, it's just it's also interesting because Portuguese is actually easier to learn because you repeat things. So somebody will ask Coheu Bang and then you say Coheu to the Bang. So it's Ah. nice. It's a very nice way of engaging because it's like a back and forth. Uh almost dance, you know. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's kind of cool. So let's get in. So what, why are you in Portugal? What you see, you you lived in the U.S., you lived in Germany, you lived in the U.K. for quite a long time, and then you are an adjunct professor at a university that's based in Australia. (laughs) And so, (laughs) so why is Portugal where you are? What are you busy doing there? So Portugal is actually really important in my history. So when I was 24 years old, I left the U.S. and I moved to Brazil because I wanted to learn Portuguese. I made a decision that I wanted to do a Ph.D. about HIV prevention uh, of young people living in Portugal. Mm. And this was at the beginning of the 2000s when HIV was still a very big issue. Mm -hmm. And Brazil, for some reason, was one of the countries that had a very strong national program and really became a limelight in the international kind of arena for their program of HIV prevention. I didn't know that. I just looked at the population dynamics of Brazil and I thought, oh, my God, things are going to explode here. There's such a huge, actually 50 percent of Brazilian population is of African descent, which many people don't know. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is somewhere I want to be. I mean, I also knew I wanted to work on the African continent, but I wanted to have one standpoint, like I wanted to have knowledge elsewhere. And so basically I had met uh, when when I was living in the U.S., we were fortunate to meet a lot of 
international young people. And so we had very, very good friends that were from Brazil. And so I was like, okay, I want to go there. I want to learn more about this country that I've seen so much about. And so I went to Brazil. I learned the language. I ended up doing my PhD in Brazil and collecting data. I went into a very famous kind of detention center system. You could call it a youth prison. It's notorious worldwide called Febeng. And I did my PhD there, which gave me a lot of street cred. So for people that have been to Brazil and that have been to Sao Paulo and know about Tebeng, people are like, wow, respect. And so that gave me an understanding of, you know, Portuguese kind of colonies or like what had come out of a Portuguese colony. Mm-hmm. And so Portuguese became my third language. It was even stronger than my French. And it stayed with me. I mean, my experience in Brazil was bittersweet. It wasn't all glamorous and fun. I saw some really, you know, difficult things and also the way I was treated. It was an, a fascinating experience to come out of that bubble in Germany where I lived as an Afro-German was more or less well integrated, but I never had really bad discrimination experiences. And then I went to Portugal and there I was kind of classed because of my color, which I had never experienced before. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they would call me Morena, which means like brown woman, But basically, you can switch social classes based on either how light you are or how educated you are. And so Mm -hmm. even though I was Morena, I was brown girl, but I was well educated and I spoke English. So I kind of like got that social lift. But at the same time, people didn't know who I was and I wasn't there with my family. And so oftentimes people would assume that I was a nanny or a maid Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. um, I had obviously a lot of European friends. So even if I went to, you know, some well-to-do restaurants and like nightclubs, people even thought I might be, you know, a prostitute. prostitute, yeah. And Mm -hmm. that had never happened to me before. And Mm -hmm. it was a real shock. So it was kind of eye-opening experience, leaving that kind of nest of, you know, family and going into the world and really realizing, wow. Being a black woman out in the world, you know, it's like, it's not what my parents taught me. You know, I was surrounded by very successful, you know, well-respected black women. And then all of a sudden I was there alone and people thought I was a maid or a prostitute. It was quite a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, okay, so that was Brazil. And so I've, you know, always been, I've been a Portuguese speaker since then. And then, you know, I did all my travels. I, you know, lived in Asia and then I came back to Europe. And I actually fell in love with Angolan Portuguese filmmaker. Okay. So that was in 2018. Okay. So with him, I started to rediscover Portugal again. Got it. We're no longer together, but I was in, I'm in a new relationship with another Portuguese person. So I think the language helped me in these relationships because we were able to establish kind of a bond with language. Sure. And yeah, I do feel like kind of an insider outsider here in Portugal because the language obviously plays a big part. Hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Very interesting. So obviously you can work anywhere. Well, that's another, that's actually a tricky question. I can work everywhere. I can work in many places because work is virtual. Yes. I'm not sure that I would be able to get a job in Portugal because I would be on the cusp. Like my my language skills are not native, especially like the writing skills. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I could compete with locals here. Mm-hmm. Um And also, I mean, just we have to be honest about the job market. Like it's, you know, Portugal was very badly hit by the recession in 2018. They're still just, you know, kind of picking things up. And there's just very few job opportunities here. So the people 
that come here come here with their own income source already. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because I've heard people saying that they've moved to Portugal. And again, as you mentioned, it's because they have some work that is outside of Portugal, right? So they're doing something, but it's a nice place to be and it's a nice place to live and exist. So how does that economic situation kind of, so you don't have to work and you're not getting paid there, but then how does that impact your everyday life? Do you see it? Do you see like, you know, the struggle generally, or is it like any other city? No, I see the struggle. I mean, we're very fortunate. So all of us internet nomads that are living here, we live very privileged lives because Mm -hmm. we earn, you know, kind of like West earn good salaries from other countries. For example, I'm working for a social impact consultancy based out of Nairobi, but, you know, I'm earning in dollars and you know, I'm earning at a level that is higher than it is here. You know, an mm-hmm. average salary here is 700 euros. Mm-hmm. So I'm privileged in the sense that, you know, I have access to money, but I do see the struggle. So last year I bought my first property. I bought a property here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the process of going through the system is quite complicated. It's very bureaucratic, quite sexist. Mm-hmm. So I found an amazing banker and she processed my loans. But it was actually the sellers, so the former owners of the apartment who couldn't believe that a black woman on her own who is not married would be able to afford the apartment. So there was quite a bit of struggle in terms of them accepting my offer and the offer going through because they just didn't think I was a strong candidate. So that's something that I went through. And, you know, that's sort of part of the negative part of being here, that it was a struggle. To assert myself as who I am, as a professional woman who is successful and who has means. Mm-hmm. But it also showed me how difficult it is and how hard it must be for, you know, Black Portuguese women who have not had the international exposure I had to assert themselves in this society. Wow. Yeah, that's very insightful. And and it's a story that's, that rings true in a lot of Western or European countries. And I mean, even to the extent of not just European, the US, Canada, and I would even venture to say it's potentially part of the issue here. You know, women don't get loans here in Ghana, meaning they don't get loans at the same rates. When you are single, you are not taken as seriously. And so hence you have that pressure to have a husband or show some kind of show of some other support that validates you. So Hmm. The world needs an injection of us to just move us along. That's for sure. I'm already looking at my second property. So I'm like kind of riding the wave because the reason why I ended up getting the apartment is because I was really held up by other strong women, including Mm -hmm. my mom who helped me financially, my banker. My lawyer was a was a woman who really fought for me when they mm-hmm. tried to kind of like take my deposit. And so mm-hmm. like I see the strength of women behind me. So I'm like, let me get my next one because then I can help somebody else eventually. Yeah. You know, like yeah. if I build my equity, um, sure. then I can help other people in more meaningful ways. Right, right. And, you know, I'm in the property game as well. And the property game is a good game to be in. It's passive income. So you can you know, move around and be a little bit more flexible about where you want to be and when you want to be where and when. So I'm wishing you lots of luck and and fortitude with with the next property. Is it also in Lisbon? I think that the next one will be in the countryside. Okay. Um, So, yeah. So we'll see. I mean, it's still early days, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Mm -hmm. good. All right. So you have this career. So you went to Brazil. 
you studied, you got your PhD, and you did it on HIV AIDS. What exactly, first of all, just tell us exactly what the thesis was, and then tell us how that, where that led you in the, the world of the UN and around the world. So my PhD topic, I wanted to basically look at a vulnerable group of men or women and then kind of like figure out like what are their barriers in terms of preventing themselves from HIV, getting HIV. And it was really hard to get access to kind of low income men or women because, you know, they're hard to find as like thought we first thought of going into low income neighborhoods, but they're quite dangerous. And then where would we find them? Would it be at a school at an association? So I ended up in the detention center system because you have a captive audience of Mm -hmm. a lot of young, extremely vulnerable men. And and that's where. I ended up kind of sad, but that's where I ended up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I was going to go in there and do a needs assessment of how they needed to improve their internal systems on, you know, giving better HIV prevention education. That was my plan. That's not how it worked out. It ended up really being more of a, a situation analysis of the system itself and how young people were located within it. So the title was Young Men, Vulnerability and Violence in the State Detention Center System, Tibang. Because what we realized is that it wasn't HIV that was their main issue. It was really violence that they mm. experienced. And not just violence mm. in terms of physical violence, but really of the structural violence they experienced as black men sure. in a state system. And yeah. all of the violence that led them to being to ending up in the system, right? Right, right. And then the interesting thing is we also did an analysis of the staff members And the staff members themselves felt imprisoned because they spent eight hours a day in the system with very vulnerable men and they didn't have enough of the support of the state to really do their jobs. So what we really felt, what this thesis ended up being was really an analysis of violence, of the structural violence that, you know, such a system creates, not just for the Mm -hmm. young people that they're supposedly trying to reform, but also for the staff members that were trying to take care of them and not really managing to take care of them in the right way. Wow. So that was very heavy. And I basically learned more about state systems in Brazil than I knew about my own country. Mm -hmm. Brazilians were, you know, they were, it was such a sensitive subject that I always got a lot of pushback and they're like, you're coming here to do this work. What have you done in Germany? And I'm like, you're right. What have I done in Germany? Mm-hmm. And so I actually did go to Germany and also visited some of the systems there and, and conducted some interviews. And it was fascinating because you know, the systems are quite different. Like the German system is well-funded. They have um, a lot more staff. They're more structured. But there was such a curiosity in terms of knowing how other people handle these issues. And so if I hadn't had such a busy career what I really wanted to do is to set up a program, like a kind of like um, mm. a, like pals that can write to yeah. each other, especially mm-hmm. the guards. They yeah. were so curious about like, how is it for them? How can we get in touch with them? We'd like to like exchange, you know, experiences. It's, it's one of the projects. It's still on in the back of my mind. I was not able to set it up, but it's something that I really want to do in the future. And so, yeah, so basically I learned a ton. I learned a language. I learned about how systems work, which, you know, Brazil made me who I am today. And that was my entry into the UN system. So it was really my foot into the door. And then I think also my language skills 
became very important in, in my UN career because Portuguese is a language that is not spoken. It's not an official UN language, but it's an important language just because a lot of countries such as Mozambique, Angola, uh, Cabo Verde are Portuguese Lusophone uh, languages. And there's not enough professionals who are able to kind of like work in those places. So yeah, so basically I, uh, through a colleague of mine, so through somebody that I did my PhD with, she was headhunted to go to UNESCO and she had hunted me to be part of her team. And that was my foot in the door. And then, you know, I stayed at UNESCO for three years. We produced the first ever UN technical guidance on sexuality education, which was a big deal at the time the first time the word sexuality was ever used in the UN document. Mm. And, and that was really an avalanche of kind of a paradigm shift on how you went from HIV education, so where you would just talk about HIV and AIDS, to really looking at teaching young people holistically about friendships, about families, about interpersonal relationships, and then, of course, of, about the disease that you can get if you, know, if you don't use protection, etc. So... That was an important starting point. And yeah, since then, I've branched out into many other areas. Now, one of the big topics right now is uh, gender-based violence. So I've also done a lot of work in that area. Menstrual health is also a big topic mm-hmm. right now. I worked for Clue mm-hmm. for a year. Mm-hmm. So I'm... Uh, for our listeners, what is Clue? Clue. Clue is an app. It's a period tracking app. It's uh, probably one of the few that has female founders, a female founder and female CEO. It's now a a double CEO team that's leading the company. And they're just very forward thinking in terms of being very gender neutral as a company. And really, they also established um, an encyclopedia of menstruation, which is, you know, very unique. Um, mm. Yeah, so it was it was an, a fascinating cool. time working with a super dynamic team. Like it was a woman, Amanda Cormier, who used to be at the New Yorker and who came to Clue and set up their entire web presence encyclopedia. They have a podcast series on hormones called Hormonal. So very very interesting and important work that they're doing. And um, and through Clue, I have now also joined uh, the board of PSI Europe. PSI is Population Services International, and they have a European office. And I joined their governance board this year. And I, with the focus of kind of helping them enlarge the portfolio in menstrual health. So all of these things have really helped me get to the place where I am now. So over time, speaking about impact, you've worked in many different, you know, two continents, three continents on in this reproductive health space. Over time, you mentioned that, you know, there are these new dialogues and things are shifting to uncover a lot of the layers that have been like shrouded based on, oh, that's just dirty. We're just not going to deal with women and all of those things. So over time, when you look at where we are now, what what do you see as the biggest impact that you've been able to accomplish in the work that you've done? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's a tough question because there's two things. There's like mm-hmm. time that has moved on. So it's the time that we're living in which is kind of the digital age. And I think the internet has done a lot Mm -hmm. to really connect people and to empower young people because they just get information themselves. They don't wait to be told. And then there's kind of like the role that me and other people play as facilitators, as really trying to create platforms where you can bring people together and then 
create policy or guidance around certain topics. So I think that I see my role more of, you know, I call myself a bridge builder. So I see myself as a person who's able to mm-hmm. convene people and where we're able to create guidance around certain topics and yeah, set agendas and, and try to reach goals. So that's that's something that I've done successfully. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's that's important. That's most of the battle, right? Is like just getting folks and stakeholders to the table to start to figure out their own solutions to a large degree. So and then you've created a lot of the documentation that supports that. So, so nice, nice. I want to talk a little bit more about your board experience. So you, you've started to be on more boards and I think, you know, the PSI is one, but you're also on different kinds of boards. So tell us a little bit more about that and where you see the board experience as part of your professional development and also organizational and and um, system change. Yes. Yeah, so thank you for mentioning that. So part of the, you know, my role as facilitator, I've also learned about power structures. And actually money is probably one of the most important power structures that we have. And, you know, we talked mm-hmm. about my own journey as becoming a homeowner and how important that is. And so what I see myself doing more in the future is really having more impact on decision-making on how spending also supports the platforms, right? Because there's one thing Mm -hmm. of like creating these guidance documents and having goals, but who's going to pay for it? And I really see myself, like I want to create space for myself where I'm really working, not just with traditional funders who are like the development agencies, the USAIDs and, you know, the UK government. I really want to work with modern funders, such as, you know, money coming out of startup worlds. You know, there's also cryptocurrency money. I'm really bringing new sources of money and then money from the private sector. Mm -hmm. I'm really bringing new sources of money to really fund these fundamental development issues that we have. And so I really want to get more into that space of being an investor, co-investor, or working with, you know, other sources of money to create funds that will then, you know, create a sustainable pipeline of investment for certain areas. And that's why the board experiences are so important, because you automatically, it propels you into a different layer of, you know, giving advice, also of getting insights into how organizations are fundraising themselves and the kind of gaps they need. And, and that's really, really where the network comes in. So like, for example, now at PSI, where they want to expand, you know, into the world of menstrual health and hygiene and where I can make the connection to Clue, right? Right. And where I can make the connection to perhaps a private sector, the Unilever type, and help them, you know, really create a bigger impact by creating a consortium of funders, researchers, implementers to really grow Mm -hmm. the program. So that's where I see myself. And the other boards that I'm on are, I'm also on the editorial board of the journal Sexuality Education. So that's through one of my mentors, Mm -hmm. Peter Agleton, Mm -hmm. Professor Peter Agleton. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why I have the adjunct position in Australia. I mean, obviously don't live in Australia, Mm -hmm. but it's basically Peter and I, we've been working together for over 20 years and I'm one of his prodigies and so basically I've maintained like a foot in the academic world and Peter and I we published together and so that's why I have the association in Australia but I'm trying to get another association now perhaps in Ghana because I'm also doing some very interesting work in Ghana now on really trying to 
bring comprehensive sexuality education, bring it back into the forefront because there was quite a bit of upheaval due to, you know, religious right movement. And um, yes. so, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of people doing, you know, behind the scenes work to make sure that Ghana's young people get the information and services they need in order to really be what I call them the leaders of, of West Africa, if not of the continent. But you cannot do that if you don't know how to conduct yourself as a sexual being as a human being and the relationships that you need to create around yourself. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's going to do it for part one of my conversation with Akua Yenka. Be sure to come back next week where Akua expands more on her board experiences, her travels through Asia, as well as her mindset hack. It is International Women's Day, and I want to say greetings to all women, all people, all humans, as we appreciate the daughters, mothers, sisters, aunties, grandmothers, all the hers in our lives. So you can catch this episode and every episode live first each and every Tuesday at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Do us a favor and share, like, subscribe, leave us a review. We really appreciate your input on the content. And until next time, bye for now.